The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. But we have this time now, at least a half an hour, and we can take a little bit more too. Just, I often say that, you know, as human beings, we're learning a lot about these wholesome attitudes, the divine abodes, as we call them, in early Buddhism, of loving kindness, compassion, appreciative joy, and equanimity. Right? We're naturally learning a lot, and, like it or not, we're learning a lot about the opposite. Right? Cruelty, as opposed to compassion, or envy, instead of appreciative joy. Reactivity, instead of equanimity and ill will instead of kindness. I mean, it's just amazing how, just if we just take a moment and reflect today. I mean, they might have been little moments, but how many moments there were when the heart was colored and maybe even dominated by ill will or by envy or um, reactivity or hatred, whatever it might have been. And of course, to hate ourselves because we're human and we have those opposites of the divine abodes, you know, and we're capable of being irritable or whatever, grumpy, that doesn't help to judge ourselves or to somehow get tight about the conditioning. As one of my teachers says, you know, the, the way our mind is conditioned, it's really impersonal and it's our responsibility. And somehow our practice needs to hold both of that. Because otherwise we can turn the loving-kindness practices that we do, like the one we did tonight, we can turn it into a sort of a version of hating ourselves or judging ourselves. You know, we try to be loving, it doesn't work, we start having doubt, we just feel like my heart is completely irredeemable. You know, it's just there's so much negativity, so much aversion, so much self-loathing. Why bother? And, and it even can seem, I'm sure some of you have felt this, that, you know what? People say this to teachers, you know what? The time I notice the most self-hatred is when I try to do loving-kindness practice. <laughs> so it's, uh, yeah, we need a sense of humor about that. And I think the the real key is to that first step of how we might arouse kindness, how we can actually um, take advantage of our lived past and the memories, the felt sense, and the possibilities of intentions. This is so important because, you know, in any moment, there's going to be a particular motivation or intention in the mind, volition in the mind. And we habitually think that whatever intention I have now, like if I'm grumpy and my intention is like to blame, whatever I think is to blame for my irritation, the tendency is to just imagine that that intention is me. So, and therefore, because it's me, there's no reason to question it at all. So we don't look. But what practice delivers over time is that there are many, like in any moment of our life, there are many possible intentions 
for the mind to keep in mind. And the loudest intention, the biggest intention, is just one of the many intentions. So you might say something to me or do something that triggers an unwholesome reaction. So I have some ill will. And that's a big movement in my heart, a big intention, like maybe I want to get even and do a zinger toward you because you've irritated me and I'm going to put you in your place or something like that, whatever it might be. Or maybe you're more the type to close down and to sort of get involved in self-hatred. But with practice, we see that, we feel, we feel what that feels like in the body and we know it's just the way it is, right? And it's just one possible intention. And it's almost as if the mind is just curious. Well, what other intentions are available? That's the loudest, that's the biggest, that's the one with most momentum. What other intentions might be possible right now? And there may be an intention like, oh honey, it isn't easy being a human being. That may be a quieter motive force in the heart, but we might, like if we're not immediately swept away by the big intention to be full of ill will and wanting to get even, we might notice the other intention. Or we might see that intention to recognize that that other person, they're also a human being. And like me, it's not easy being a human being. And they're probably acting out whatever pain they're experiencing or whatever you know, limited perspective that they're living out of. Ah, right? And the heart starts to expand. That generosity like, oh, it's hard being a human being. And I care. I care about, maybe initially we just care about ourselves, but it won't be long before that upwelling, we make the shift from the second step, right? The first step is just, how can we arouse this human potential to be kind, to be loving, to be that, that sort of giving away our good wishes toward ourselves or others? How can we arouse it? And how, once aroused, how can we feel, have that felt sense of up, uh, upwelling? And it's really an upwelling of goodness, and it feels good, because it's the opposite of a narrow, tight frame of mind. It's a generous quality of heart and mind, and it's a loosening of the oppressiveness of fear and hatred and envy and you know, the, the opposites of the four divine abodes, so that we recognize that upwelling. And then the next, the third step is that upwelling, we tune into a very particular quality of it, which is, it isn't dependent. So initially, like I, the example I gave about holding my cat next to my heart and looking out the window and having those shared moments where we're both happy to be with each other, you know, and it may only be 20 seconds before... He's, he's not a cat that likes to be held. And I'm not a person who likes to hold a cat. So it kind of works, because like 20 seconds is sort of enough. And we're both really relaxed for about 20 seconds before my sort of restless nature is going, okay, so what's next? And his restless nature is going, yeah, that's enough. It's time for me to go outside or do this or that. So we have that moment and we can feel the upwelling and then t 
to notice that that good, that upwelling of goodness, isn't actually just about the cat. It's not dependent on the cat. Having the cat there, or just even the memory of the cat being there, you know, whoever you're, however you're able to arouse love for yourself, right? And then we feel the actual capacity to care. That's the upwelling. And then the third is realizing that that upwelling actually isn't dependent on what we use to arouse it. That's an important step. And a lot of us in our meditation, our loving-kindness meditation, we just stick with having a cause for the love we're keeping in mind. But we really want to begin to realize love, whatever flavor, compassion, kindness, joy, equanimity, any of the four flavors of love, we want to realize it not dependent, independent. And that's the beginning, like understanding that boundless quality. Like this is a a natural resting place for the heart and mind to be generously open, to not be throwing anything out or to not be inclusive of everything. And, and that, you know, the image is like a light that shines in all directions. That's why the four quarters, behind, to the left, above, below, everywhere and every way, including to ourselves, nothing is left out. It's boundless, unrestricted. And so that's the third step, is just to basically begin to sense that generosity of light that just goes out in all directions. It's not picking and choosing. And this is like a felt sense in the heart, that generosity. And then the fourth step is to trust that enough to relax, to really, to, it's another insight, right? The realization that I don't have to do it. Because we're still in that mode like, oh yeah, I'm radiating out infinitely in all directions. It's really a good thing. There's probably a lot of healing going around. This is great. And there's still an identification with the radiation, that the great generosity of love in all directions. And then we realize even that's too much. We do, it's unnecessary. So we drop the doing, and it's more like resting, abiding. And it's a whole other little subtle learning. So we have the arousing, the actual felt sense of love moving in our heart, body, and mind. The upwelling. Going from a constricted state to like a flower blossoming. Or a, a kind of, you know, someone can have sort of a, not a frown even, but just a, a lack of affect. And then something makes them happy and it's like, that natural smile just blossoms. So that's the upwelling, that's the second insight. Like, oh yeah, this heart is capable of blossoming in a very organic, natural way with love. Cool, that's beautiful. And then the third is to see that that love isn't dependent on anything, doesn't need a cause. Even though we used an image or a phrase or whatever we used to kind of ignite it. So it's boundless. It has its own sort of feedback. The good feeling itself feeds back and it just builds like an exponential function, if you know math. It just sort of expands.
And then the last is trusting, relaxing, abiding, going from doing to being. And I really appreciate Venerable Analio, this German monk, who kind of just clarified these four steps because I find them very useful, and hopefully you will too. So I'm going to stop talking and, and really open it up for the group. As I mentioned earlier, we've all been learning about love and what gets in the way of love in our life in very practical, ordinary ways. So this is a good time just to share a little bit about what you've been learning these last weeks, months of your practice. It's also a really good time to ask questions, even really simple nuts and bolts questions about the practices of loving-kindness that have come to mind, or even more generally about the practice, the Buddhist the Buddhist teachings, feel free to ask those kind of questions. So anybody would like to begin and just share about what you've been learning, questions that are emerging, responses to what I've said tonight. What comes to mind? Yeah. Is it uh, Joan raising their hand? Hi, Joan. Yeah, right. Um, My question is about to open one's heart, what I encounter then is um, the overwhelming suffering in the world around me. And it's overwhelming. (laughs) So, uh, but it seems like if the heart is open to even a quiet love or holding a container for what is, then the suffering is so present. Yeah, but part of that is just the habit of the mind to turn towards suffering. And some of us have the habit of the mind to turn away from suffering, and some of us have the habit of mind to turn towards suffering. So it's good to know how to turn towards suffering and to allow the heart to be touched. But if it's too much too soon, then we're not good for anybody because it's like a big wave comes and we don't even know how to handle that emotional wave, let alone be useful for other people that might, or to model fearlessness in the world, right? So part of it is, it's like when the mind notices that suffering, you don't want to tell yourself that you're doing something wrong because what you're, what's coming to your mind may be very, you might be very clear. Right, seeing clearly the way it is. But is it the only truth? And so a simple question, Joan, like, well, what else is true? Oh, there's, there's a bunny rabbit in my backyard eating clover. That's also true right now. And I'm, I can imagine without too much of a stretch that that rabbit is happy that there's green clover to chew on. You know, and is right now not being threatened. And I, and I feel a natural welling up. May you be well. May you live with ease. I know there's a lot of suffering. And I know there are a lot of cats hunting rabbits and, you know, let alone whatever else, right? But I care. And that feels good. Or just, you know, appreciate the chair you're sitting on. Or the health that you have in this moment. So it doesn't, it isn't about denying the truth of suffering in the world. It's also being curious. Like when, when we're not curious about what else is true, our recognition of suffering 
could have possibly drifted not into compassion, but into a version of, oh, poor me, the world is totally screwed up. And it's totally unfair, and people are being completely oppressed, unfairly taken advantage of. And I don't know what to do. And it's not okay. And, and basically, we're justifying getting tight because we're activating fear. And it's not that we're not seeing clearly, we're just not taking in the whole picture. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows. And it's so interesting, you know, how when we uh, make, become intentional about seeing the joys, the simple, ordinary joys, it can feel, this is a lie, but it can feel like we're not doing justice to the truth of suffering because we're enjoying a milkshake or a warm bath or laughing about a stupid program with a friend. You know, it's like, how can we do that when people are being oppressed or taken advantage of or whatever? And that's just, we, we, we need to ask ourselves, well, what's the, how does it cause harm? I mean, you, you could say the same thing about meditation. How can we put aside 30 minutes or 45 minutes to abide in that good feeling of universal love when we should be, and on and on, right? And this is the, this is the thing, it's like, um, We have to open to the possibility that, uh, like that, the, the idea that I have to suffer until everybody's free from suffering, that that's sort of the spiritual ideal, as opposed to I'm going to do my best to learn how to live freely in a world filled with suffering, so as to model for everybody else how to learn how to be free in a world that's filled with suffering and injustice. doesn't mean we don't care about addressing the injustice or the suffering, but we're not imagining that postponing freedom is the way. But I don't claim to be good at this, (laughs) but I do claim to be interested in this. Thanks, John, for getting us started. Hey, Junie, thanks for raising your hand. Hi. Um, so, first of all, I'm very grateful because if there's anything that came out of COVID-19 pandemic that was a good thing, it was that Common Ground went online when I moved away. <laughs> so, it, I'm just so grateful to be able to have attended so many programs. Um, second of all, um, I, um, uh, cats have come up a few times so far, and I thought of a cat who passed away recently during my loving-kindness meditation, and it's to the point where I don't feel grief anymore when I think of her. It's just appreciation for having known that cat and had that cat in my life, and I, I do recall, though, at one point um, when the cat was very ill, um, there was 
there wasn't very much chance of her surviving. And there was, uh, my friend was, um, had some options for her, but they weren't very likely to save her. And my friend was afraid of hope. And she just said, I didn't want to hope. And I was wondering if you would be able to kind of give your take on hope and, you know, it can be a hard thing to hope because you hope for something and then, you know, what happens after you've hoped for it and you don't get what you've been hoping for. So I was just curious of your take on hope and, you know, the suffering that can come with that. Yeah, yeah, that's such a good question. Um... And of course, the, the real answer is for us to experiment and to be interested in the, the question that Junie asked. Am I saying your name right, Junie? Yeah, that Junie asked, like, just to look. Because, you know, words are funny, and there may be, like, if we take this inspiration to just observe when there's hope, when there's what we would call hope in our mind, in our heart, and when is it conducive of stress, and when is it conducive of love and, and freedom? That would be the useful thing. Because, you know, part of the teachings from the Buddha is that anything can happen any time. And that we're, you know, unless you're like fully psychic and you feel and see everything, I don't know anybody like that, um, like we're not able to read what's in motion. And so, you know, we might have some statistics from the veterinarian uh, or from a doctor or whatever, the particular thing we're wondering about, or even social situations, climate change, racial injustice. You know, should we be hopeful? Well, we know that anything's possible. We've seen, like in history, things really turn around at times when they didn't think they were. And we've also seen at times things turn really go south really badly when maybe they weren't expected to go badly. So what is it like to live in that kind of world? So I would say hope, like even the truth of impermanence, means that things are going to keep changing. And so that keeps hope alive. Because I don't know how they're going to change. But nothing's static. And the other thing that brings, like from an early Buddhist point of view, hope in... Hope comes with the deepening understanding of karma. Because there's a lot of emotion from the past, right? But how we're showing up, how we're relating right now, is also a very, has a very powerful impact on how things are going to unfold going forward. And it's like somebody gets cancer and they relate in this way. Another person gets cancer and they relate in a di completely different way and they have different outcomes. So we, part of hope is that it re it's not set in stone, it really matters how I relate. Even if the circumstances are very dire, even if statistically it doesn't look good, it still matters how I relate, how I show up. Because that's part of what affects how things unfold. The mind that's knowing, the mind that's relating, the heart that's either here, intimate, or closed off, walled off. 
it matters. And then the last thing I'll say is the early Buddhism is very pragmatic. So one way to address that question of hope is, uh, pragmatically speaking, is being hopeful. What does that set in motion in my heart and around me? Just ask that question in a very pragmatic way. It's not like, should I have hope? Is rather, is it a pragmatically skillful thing to do, being hopeful? If not, let it go. If yes, then use it. Right? And, and keep an open mind like, yeah, it was, seems like it was helpful, but now that I feel into it more, I see that it's not helpful, or it seemed unhelpful, but now it seems like it buoys the heart up. So I'm going to use it. So it's almost like a kind of medicine that we use strategically. Now people, we don't like to hear that we want a yes or no answer about these things, but early Buddhism is much more pragmatic. And like what's skillful, the medicine that's skillful, the way, the attitude that's skillful, is really about this particular moment. And that's why we can't practice with a set plan. We have to be sensitive or intimate moment by moment so we can feel our way through our lives. Yeah, thanks so much, Junie. That was a good comment. Did you have anything else to add? Uh, no, thank you so much. Still got some time left. It'd be nice to hear any other thoughts people have or reflections from your life, what you've been learning about love, even in a general sense. Yeah, Lucy, welcome. Evening. Yes, it's my first time at this uh, Friday evening meeting, I believe. And I really like uh, the comment um, about the animals, um, and it made me reflect on um, when I was walking a couple of days ago. I was walking on the sidewalk, and all of a sudden, I saw an ant carrying another ant. And my immediate thought was, "Oh no, somebody killed that ant!" And then my second thought was, "Oh, how wonderful that another sibling ant is carrying a dead ant somewhere else." And so um, there was that little spark of, um, I hope his family as well, the aunt's family as well, and that they're paying honor. But it did make me, it, it made me pay attention to my steps because I found myself then on the sidewalk looking for other ants because I didn't want to, <laughs> I didn't want to kill any other ants. That's my cat. Um, <laughs> Um, so, yeah, so I can see these, the, the loving kindness, how loving kindness can just make little shifts in the mind. Um, I think where I struggle and my question is um, in uh, challenging relationships, uh, it, like for me, it's in the professional, like in my work. How do I bring, um, I'm working really hard to try to not get triggered and respond and uh, to keep a loving heart. So can you speak a little bit about that, of um, loving kindness in, in difficult relationships? Yeah. Anywhere, really, but yeah. thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks, Lucy. Maybe your cat wants to be held. <laughs> and I loved what you said first. I just want to say I loved what you said because that story about the ants, a perfect example of what Junie and I, I think, were chatting about 
like there are different ways to tell the story about the ant carrying the other ant. And then just pragmatically asking ourselves, I mean, not that we have to get that involved, but how do I want to tell the story? Now that I'm seeing an ant carrying another ant, it's not done because there's not just one way to tell the story. What's a skillful, what's an enlivening way for my mind to understand what I'm seeing on the sidewalk? And that's, again, we don't like that because it's like, it feels like a lot more responsibility. Not only are we living our life, but we have to decide what's the right way to narrate our life to ourselves. But if we don't, we're going to narrate our life to ourselves in the way that is the biggest habit, which is often kind of a fear-based way or, you know, but generally not that skillful. So it's really good to realize there's always a choice in terms of our intention, in terms of how we tell the story. And, and the neat thing is, we could tell the story, it sounds like you did that with the ant, like, you know, oh no, you know, that ant's dead or whatever. And then you realize, I don't know, it would be interesting even to, to deconstruct, like how you realize, oh, there's another way to tell the story, a more satisfying way, a more useful way, a more enlivening way. Same is true with the difficult people in our lives. Like we can lament and feel, oh poor me, about those uh, petty tyrants, you know, the difficult people in our lives. And we all have our version of that, or many of those versions of those people in our lives. And, uh, you know, I know it sounds a little contrived to say it, but like, oh goody, I'm going to work and I'm going to have to meet with that person and boy, did they know how to get under my skin. Or boy, did they trigger that unhelpful response, uh, response in me to be defensive or to feel really bad about myself. This will be interesting. You know, it's like, how, I wonder what freedom looks like when I have a working colleague, colleague like this. And just to imagine that yeah, it, it may not be something that we would choose to have a colleague like this, but given that we have a colleague like this, what's the best way, most functional way to frame having a colleague like this? Like, God is out to get me, or this isn't fair, or this person has no right to exist. I mean, these because any of those ideas and sort of frames are oppressive. You know, believing that somehow nature should not allow those kind of people because just all the implications of that point of view. So, and then there are of course many other things to keep in mind when we have a difficult person. One is, is to, often an easy, a relatively easy step is to realize Working with a person like this is really hard. And it reminds me it's not easy being a human being. This is a prime example of what I mean when I tell myself it isn't easy being a human being. And it breaks my heart. Because if it's like this for me, it's like this for everybody in little and big ways. And I care about my own discomfort having to work with this person. And... In my better moments, I care about everybody else having to deal with their petty tyrants. And, and all of a sudden, we're in a good place, because not because we don't have a difficult person, but because we care 
about having a difficult person. So one is identifying with the victim of this, what we imagine is an obnoxious person, but the other is this generous, oh honey, you're in a pickle, this person isn't going to leave probably, and I care about that. Like I, I'm, I'm in this perspective where I can be generously caring about my own life as opposed to being the victim of my life. And it's really just a shift in intention. Do I want to dwell as the victim or do I want to abide as the one who cares about how difficult it is? And then when there's more stability, we don't feel so oppressed by the difficult person, then we can realize how difficult it must be to be that difficult person. So that we, we train ourselves to see the other person, the difficult person, through the lens that recognizes the truth of suffering and them. Like, I wonder what it would be like to be having the attitudes that this person has, as, I, as the best I can tell. I wonder what it would be like to be making the choices that this person is making. I wonder what that would be like to be in their skin. Oh, probably not so good. Even if they would say to me that they're doing fine, I'm guessing it's not so fine, even if they don't realize it themselves. Right? Because if the person is really being unskillful, then karma does the work. It is not comfortable being unskillful. No one gets away with nothing. That was one of my teachers, Ruth Dennison, who I studied with a little bit. Um, she's dead now, but she's just a real character and a wonderful Dharma teacher. And she says, honey, you don't get away with nothing. <laughs> and that's the, that's the thing. So if we're in a, you know, causing trouble in the world, you know, and even if we're beautiful, we have a beautiful body and a lot of wealth and a lot of power, no one gets away with anything. Because that negativity leaves an imprint. It doesn't matter if no one else notices that someone's being unskillful even, because the heart itself knows if it's abiding in hatred or fear or whatever. Any other thoughts about that, Lucy? That's very helpful. I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I like the term petty tyrant. I'm gonna lean more on petty because the stuff is really, uh, mm, the stuff that's coming up is not that important, I guess. It's not life changing. So thank you so much. Yeah. You're welcome. We have time for a couple more comments or questions. If anybody has anything they'd like to share with the group. Learnings from your own, you know, petty tyrants in your life that kind of feeding off of what Lucy brought up and the others. Like just that shift, seeing that, oh yeah, I could go down this pathway and then seeing another possibility where the heart is in a more open and expansive place. Those are good examples to share with each other. Yeah, Jillian. Hey, everybody. Um, I think um, 
So a couple of things come to mind um, is the kind of expansiveness um, that love provides, you know, and like, I love, I love Ram Dass's phrase, I am loving awareness. And, um, you know, sometimes I, I will kind of use that phrase as, uh, you know, yeah. like a noting, um, practice, um, just that, you know, our consciousness itself is loving awareness. And I appreciate that, um, reminder. Um, I have a three-year-old daughter and so, um, there are these moments where I will be able to catch those urges to like control her behavior or, um, with, really needlessly, you know, really like, it's not like she's running into traffic or about to chop her finger off. I mean, it's just like those really egoic kind of like, don't make a mess or, you know, it's like not really anything that, um, critical, uh, but it's like that, you know, habit, um, that, I think so many people can I relate with whether they were controlled that way or as a parent, you want to like just clamp down on, on, uh, this little person sometimes, but then those moments where you see that start and the mind and, and then this other possibility comes aside and says, no, 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 just, just let go. And, and you just like, there's this space that opens up and there's this allowing for, um, just like, just, I don't know. I can't just, it's, I just describe, I just, this, it's this feeling of opening, like the, the claws come out <laughs> and, um, you know, the Ellie, the, the daughter gets to do whatever. Um, make a mess or, um, draw on the table. Um, and life goes on, like the sun comes up in the next morning and, and we have a better relationship and, and love is what continues to grow. Um, and calling those things to mind is really reinforce self reinforcing them as well. So, yeah. Such a powerful sharing, and I just, I just, on behalf of the group, thanking you, Julian, but also all the other speakers, just for your generosity to share. It's just a beautiful thing, and that's such a powerful example. Um, and like in that moment, just to realize, uh, like giving, just like you, the last point you were making, Julian, about creating, like realizing there's space for the chaos of having a three-year-old, right? I don't have to manage or control it. And, uh, but even our own obsessive controlling, can there be space for that too? You know, that's the moment of forgiveness because you could have beaten yourself up, right? But something else happened. You didn't bother to beat yourself up for being, having the claws in, as you said. Right, you just, we're so grateful that the claws 
could really like realizing that the claws don't have to be there. And that's you know that's really and probably I don't have I didn't raise kids I don't have kids but just all the different places there is that chaos for some of us who like now I'm in my mid 60s just the chaos of having an aging body or those of us with busy jobs and lots of responsibilities just the chaos of not being able to do everything with as much attention as we'd like that needs attention um so there's everyone has these places where things are too much too fast too chaotic and like Jelaine was saying the claws come out like we just presume that being tight is justified but it doesn't work and then we harm the ones we love we see that you know or we get in our in the way of taking care of what we want to take care of and if we're lucky we realize that and i i wrote this down uh for these notes for tonight life is either a tenderizing process or it's a solidifying process these are our only two choices and and it reminds me of that quote from i'm sure many of you've seen it helen keller um who i am guessing most of you know was blind and deaf and for a while mute she couldn't speak until her teacher and Sullivan taught her how to talk and uh said later in life security is mostly a superstition it does not exist in nature life is either a daring adventure or nothing <laughs> that's probably something you can relate to as a mother of a 3-year-old yeah so nice to be with everyone tonight and Uh, time for any last sharing if there's something relatively short before we end our time. Thanks for people who wrote into the chat. It's a nice way to connect as well. Any last thoughts? Can I say something, Mark? Oh, please, yeah. Um something that I've learned from these meditations on Friday um It's like the I try to get like daily things that happen to try to get more familiar with that sense of love to, and right now I'm more challenged to try to hold it like to I have this um pot this this uh, plant that was it died and there was a dirt in it and I was meaning to get rid of it but <laughs> I went to go get it and there was a pigeon in there hmm. and she was like ducking down and she had laid her egg and that just warms my heart and and those images trying to hold them is where i'm challenged right now and so i was wondering to to kind of support me in that could you tell us what those four steps of the process are yeah and the and the reason why it's helpful to have these four is we tend to like just stick with often the first one arousing love but it's already aroused and if we don't go on to the others the more refined steps the practice will get frustrating so we want to arouse it and that's really the place of creativity where we kind of use our memories and our um, mental images we can generate and language words ways we reflect it could be a simple word almost like a mantra like the word ease i use sometimes just repeating that reminds me like to feel that upwelling that generosity of wishing beings ease wishing myself ease so the arousing and then paying attention keeping in mind the 
upwelling. So now we're actually feeling the movement of love. It's a felt sense. There's something moving, expanding. We feel it from tightness to opening. And then the third is more refined, uh, you know, each one more refined. So the third step is when we realize that that movement that we've been feeling <coughs> and keeping in mind, it's naturally inclusive. It's not about the image that I brought to mind, that particular being or the particular situation that's evoking love. That love is here, it's always in a sense available, and it's not dependent on anything. So now this is that um, boundlessness of love, the inclusivity of love. So it's, we're basically having insight into a more refined aspect of the attitude of love. And then the last is that we can abandon any idea of somebody meditating or practicing love. And it's, so it's much more about resting, trusting, abiding, because that really sets it free. Experimenting with not doing the meditation. <laughs> and there it, there it is, it's just love. Nobody doing it. So it's been wonderful to be together with everyone. May we all abide, pervading love in all quarters, above and below, all around, everywhere, in every way. Let's all abide, pervading the all-encompassing world with love, abundant, boundless, immeasurable, freely given, without ill will, without hostility. May we all abide. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.